Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Michelle Yurkovich about her new book, Feeding the Hungry, Advocacy and Blame in the Global Fight Against Hunger, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2020. This book challenges the conventional wisdom in human rights scholarship on advocacy and also the conventional wisdom on the relationship between rights, norms, and the law. Michelle, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Um, Previously, I served as a fellow with the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, based at USAID in the Office of Food for Peace, Um, though I should note that that happened after I, I submitted this current book that you're working, that we're talking about today uh, for review. Um, so that will more inform the next project. Um, and I've held visiting positions at Harvard Safra Center for Ethics um, and uh, Kluge Fellowship at the Library of Congress. But more personally, I'm a fifth generation Fresnan. <laughs> so I am from Fresno, California. My family has deep roots there. Um, and a lot of why I study what I study, I think, is rooted in that. So for people who have been to Fresno before, You may know that it is one of the largest agricultural counties in the country. Uh, We produce more fruits and vegetables and nuts than any other county in the the country. We're very proud of that. Um, But we also have extremely high rates of hunger um, and concentrated poverty. And so growing up there is to witness side by side um, an abundance of agriculture and the inability for those who most need it to have access to it. And that problem motivates this book, though the book focuses on that, that problem outside of our borders. So I was going to ask you how you came to write this oh. book, Feeding the Hungry. So, um, you know, is, is there more to that story other than sort of being and growing up in Fresno? Is there something that shifted well, your attention to sort of the international dimension? Well, I think that um, I think th- the general idea that you can have a problem in an area with abundant supply, whether this is Fresno or somewhere else, um, it can very clearly not be a technical problem um, in that you can see quite 
apparently, um, that it is not for a lack of technical ability that you grow enough food or can have an efficient enough industry. Um, very much made me go to graduate school wanting to understand what I assumed was a political problem, um, which is, okay, so when we have more food than we need, which is true globally, not just in the U.S., um, then then why is it that hunger still persists in this world? And, and it is fundamentally a political problem. Um, and so that, I think, is what motivated me to study this particular topic. Um, the way I went about studying it, of course, was, was um, influenced by a whole host of other factors um, and where I went to graduate school, the courses that motivated me when I was there, these sorts of things. Right. As, as tends to be the case. Um, so uh, early on in the book, you provide some really striking statistics about hunger worldwide. Perhaps you can start by just describing the size of this problem. Yeah, so we can start with the caveat that it is really hard to measure hunger. Um, and so depending on the measure you use, the metric you use, you'll get a different answer. And, and they're not small differences. So, um, And that maybe is for a broader conversation that we can have at another time. But if you, if you try to approach measuring hunger through interviews as opposed to through anthropometric indicators like a public health person would, you'd get different pictures. But regardless of the method that you use, hunger is... A, I think it is safe to say it is one of the most, if not the most, um, pressing humanitarian um, and human security challenges we face today. So more people die from hunger than die from all conflict put together. Um, more people die from hunger than uh, HIV, um, malaria, uh, tuberculosis combined. So it is a widespread problem that exists not only um, in the places that we might expect it to exist, places where they're coming out of civil wars, places where there have been widespread droughts, um, but it happens in developed countries, it happens everywhere. Um, and it is a problem that is often invisible. Um, and that is especially true for chronic hunger. So I think the, the focus of the book is on chronic hunger. Um, mostly when people talk about hunger in the media, they talk about moments of famine or acute hunger, um, short periods of really catastrophic um, hunger, but not persistent and long-term. Um, and that long-term chronic hunger constitutes the largest percentage of, of this particular problem, the problem of hunger in the world. And that's what the book focuses on. And I mean, given how pressing this problem is, it's really remarkable that political scientists haven't focused more of our attention on it. Um, so how did you go about researching international anti-hunger advocacy? Can you tell us about the methods you used? Sure. So it, uh, through a couple different ways. So there's a historical component to the book, and that part relies on archival work. So both through archival work at the U.S. and the U.K. National Archives, but also um, archival work with the Food and Agriculture Organization, um, which is based in, in Rome. And I did also look at some organizational archives like Oxfam's uh, archives. They actually didn't make it into the book, um, just because of other reasons. But but I looked at those as well because they're important. Um but then the contemporary part of the book, um, the, which the vast majority of the book focuses more on contemporary anti-hunger advocacy up to 2014 or so, um, leans heavily on my conversations, interviews, um, and surveys done with um, senior and executive officials at the most influential uh, international anti-hunger organizations that work on chronic hunger. And these organizations crossed the domains of development organizations uh, with human rights organizations, with humanitarian organizations, 
groups that blend the work of, of many of those different types. Um, and I included a couple of foundations as well. Really fascinating. Um, so drawing on some of this research, especially the archival research, can you give us some historical context? You know, in the book, you talk about how hunger evolved from a condition to a problem in the mid-1940s. So how did hunger first make it onto the political agenda? Yeah, so the the Hot Springs Conference in 1943, um, which has a really interesting backstory. So you can imagine um, World War II is still going on. It's kind of a weird time to hold an international conference on hunger, uh, particularly hunger internationally outside of your state's borders. Uh, but the U.S. decides to call this international conference. Um, they invite 43 different countries to come. They all show up. Um, and and they position hunger as what will be a key issue coming out of World War II and something that they wanted the international community to start to develop an approach towards solutions for and ultimately create an organization to combat. So this became the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, which was established in 1945. But what's interesting about that conference to me, um, if you go through the archival record, both in the U.S. and the U.K. National Archives, and kind of see the different perspectives that the British had when they got the invitation um, as for why the United States would ever bother to, to make hunger such an international issue around which you'd organize a conference in the middle of a war, a world war, um, and then U.S. motivation. What you see is, is kind of, uh, and I talk about this a bit in the book, some very interesting, both kind of political, social, and kind of normative debates that were forming. And so one of these is um, to what extent uh, in the U.S. government, they thought that hunger could be what they called a weapon in the war of ideas. Um, and and it's kind of interesting to think of it in that way, but the, there was a contingent of people in the U.S. government that believed that if the U.S. could portray itself as having a solution towards hunger at the end of the war, they would be better positioned to be a international leader, uh, that they would have more legitimacy um, in this new world order. And so they kind of set the stage for that. Anyways, there's a deeper story there, but I think the, that that particular conference is, is quite fascinating. So after 1943, when you see this big international conference um, where states come together and say, okay, we need to, to develop an approach towards dealing with hunger, um, including hunger outside our borders, and we're going to set up an organization that's going to be tasked with doing this. You then see a struggle over time as what becomes the Food and Agriculture Organization and later splits off into two, which is the World Food Program on the one hand, and uh, which used to be part of the FAO and kind of had a bit of an organizational coup, and then the Food and Agriculture Organization on the other hand, and how they try to understand what type of problem hunger is um, and how we think analytically about it and so how we think about solutions. And so there in, the, in that historical chapter, I look at you know what has changed and what stayed the same and, and what has changed is certainly the level of aspiration, the level of comfort um, that uh, that both the FAO and, and uh, NGOs have had in dealing with highly aspirational campaigns, ending hunger, like the SDG2, zero hunger by 2030, right? This type of advocacy, that type of aspirational campaign had been pitched back in the 1950s and disregarded as being um, problematic for the legitimacy of the organization, the FAO, who thought, look, we know we're never going to get to zero hunger, right? So how, why would we say we're going to do something we're not going to do? Whereas now we're completely fine with having highly aspirational campaigns. But there's also been a change in the, the, the number and influence of civil society groups in that space. In terms of what stayed the same, 
a lot. So it's always been very difficult for in, when talking about hunger to separate out um, kind of these, these arguments that say hunger is inherently a supply problem or it's a population problem. So here's your Malthusian argument from the late 1700s, which has been extremely difficult to kind of quash in this particular space. And it has influences in the way that the problem is addressed and in who gets to sit at the table. So if you think about hunger as primarily an agricultural problem, you set up the FAO with agricultural ministers, which they did. You position domestic food stamps under departments of agriculture, which we do here. You send state delegates from your ministries of agriculture to the FAO for the meetings, which they do. Um, and your emphasis will be on on supply side and production side um, solutions. So better food technologies, growing more food in more environmentally friendly ways, etc. Um, but as I talk about in the book, this also misses a whole element of kind of the social dynamics and questions of nutrition and questions of health that that would often approach this way differently, but have been less prevalent in, in that space. And then, of course, another thing that's certainly changed is we now have a right to food. Um, and we did not in the 1940 and 1943. Um, and that's been uh, influential as well. So we're going to talk much, much more, I hope, about the right to food in, in a little bit. Um, but now I want to switch to sort of an attention on the existing political science literature right now. You know, political scientists have been interested in international human rights advocacy for for quite a while. Right. But part of what you argue in the book is that existing models don't do a very good job of explaining contemporary anti-hunger advocacy. So can you tell us about the existing models that we have and why they don't perform as well uh, in explaining um, anti-hunger advocacy today? So one of the contentions, one of my contentions in the book is that while we focused a lot on human rights um, in the field, especially in the field of international relations, we, we, we are very lopsided in which rights we pay attention to. And we focus far more on civil and political rights. And we derive theoretical assumptions from the behavior of advocacy around civil political rights. And, and those assumptions often which are at the basis of some of our, our theories on, on how advocacy works, don't match well or don't play out well um, when you hold up the empirics of economic and social rights. So one thing I hope the book can do is to say, look, by holding up an, an important economic and social right, the right to food, to some of the expectations of our models, we, we one, we see where some of the weaknesses are, but we also see some... Like, there's a, there's a big wide world out there <laughs> where I'm hoping more people come in um, because there's quite a lot to be learned um, about some of the complexity that happens in the both social and normative and political dynamics with economic and social rights. So what do I mean by that? Um, if we think about how, how IR scholars have and transnational advocacy scholars have thought about human rights advocacy, I think two models come to mind, and that would be Kekensicking's boomerang model and Risa Rappensicking's spiral model. And these are exceptionally important models, and they have done incredibly important work, um, and they explain a lot. But they don't explain the right to food. Um, and, and so in the book, I walk through what sorts of assumptions are underlying these models and that don't fit when we hold them up to this economic and social right? And so those would be things like the assumption that there's a unitary target actor. So the boomerang model lists this as state A in the model, although both models acknowledge it could be a non-state actor. 
but it's listed as stating. Um, but both models assume that whatever that target actor is, it's unitary, that all of the other actors in the network can agree that when there's a rights violation, there is one unitary actor that they're going to blame as, as the violator and target with their advocacy pressure. And that's important to how we think about the models working. But as I argue in the food case, there is no unitary target actor. Um, and I use that to kind of unravel, well, why would we assume that there would be? This is where we get into the norms bit. But another assumption in the models is that there's a specific directionality. So local NGOs go to international NGOs who then you know, find outside states and outside international organizations to help them funnel pressure. That's complicated in the food space for reasons I explain. And that there may be a potential role for intergovernmental uh, organizations to help focus advocacy uh, pressure, which often doesn't happen in the food case. I talk about why that's the case. That's very helpful. So, uh, you know, as you know, in the book, you you suggest that anti-hunger advocacy is not very well explained by the boomerang model or by the spiral model. And instead, you advance what you call a buckshot model. Can you tell us about that framework? Sure. The buckshot model is meant to describe and hopefully explain to the extent that these models explain boomerang spiral or buckshot, um, what we see when we look at contemporary anti-hunger activism. And here we see organizations, even within the same organization, that will, I say buckshot, but but fan out or distribute, disperse, um, blame across many target actors, often at the same time. Um, and the effect of that is no singular actor. So who are these actors for hunger? They could be outside states. They could be transnational corporations. They could be price speculators. They can be nobody at all. They, there's, there's a wide array of actors that are targeted as to blame. And when you have lots of villains or potential villains, you're trying to create villains, really, um, there's no focused advocacy pressure on one single actor. And and the concern then is that that allows targeted actors to deflect more easily um, than they would if all actors in the network agreed, for instance, that national governments are the ones who are responsible. Um, sounds easy enough, but it isn't easy here. Um, and I, I walk through why that's the case. So do you mind giving us you know, a, a specific example? In the book, you sort of highlight uh, some uh, campaigns, some anti-hunger campaigns, right? Um, do you mind giving us you know, some examples of you know, this sort of buckshot model at work? Sure. So uh, if you think about at any one given moment of time, um, so in in the case of the book, for instance, the, the campaigns I was looking at were active often around between 2010, 2014, right around there. Um, and you would see at the same time, say, uh, Oxfam running behind the brands, which was their campaign, which was targeting transnational corporations for their um, responsibility in in what they saw as perpetuating hunger through poor land and labor policies. Um, at the same time, ActionAid was running um, tax justice, which became tax power. This was arguing that um, entities like Barclays, by setting up tax havens, were allowing um, corporations to evade tax responsibilities. And that meant that by not paying taxes in countries in which they were working, they weren't contributing to internal revenue. And so they were indirectly then, or directly, depending on who you ask, um, causing the hunger problem. Uh, at the same time, there was the caravan um, of hope. Um, so it, it was a it was a caravan um, walk in sub-Saharan Africa that 
drew attention to the links between climate change and hunger. So the argument here was that the largest global emitters um, were responsible for climate change and climate change was responsible for hunger. Therefore, the U.S. and China was responsible for the hunger that was taking place in these um, sub-Saharan African countries in which I think it was 13, maybe 11 different countries in which the caravan was taking place. Anyways, I, I give you these kind of in rapid fire succession just to say that at any one moment, you're, you would see a lot of different targets by different really influential advocacy organizations, and there wouldn't be a cohesive agreement on one. That's very helpful. Um, so, you know, I, I think you present a, a persuasive argument for why it is that anti, uh, for the fact that anti-hunger advocacy doesn't seem to follow the expectations of the very well-established models that we have in the, in the field. Um, but, you know, why? Why does anti-hunger advocacy look so different from the advocacy around civil and political rights that, that has been he so heavily studied in the literature? In other words, why do we see buckshotting of advocacy in this particular issue area? I think that answering that question um, requires us to focus on the normative uh, and social environment in which these anti-hunger organizations are working. Um, and I think that if we one of the benefits of, of kind of taking seriously the boomerang and uh, buckshot models and in thinking through what does it mean to, to assume there's a unitary target? What does it mean to assume that diverse actors in a network, an advocacy network, are, are going to inherently agree when they see a human rights violation, whether that's a, a right to food violation or it's a right to not be enforceably disappeared violation, whatever that violation is, that we would assume that actors would automatically know, oh, well, if this thing happens, then the state's to blame. What we're assuming there is, is that there's a norm, um, that there is, a, which I define following Katzenstein and Fenimore and Sickink as a standard of appropriate behavior for an actor of a given identity. So meaning there's a, there's a common answer to the question, who should do what, um, such that when that thing isn't done, you know who the violator was who was supposed to do it. The problem is there had been some slippage in the human rights literature, and this is, I think, in part because of the focus on civil and political rights, which assumed that if a human right was codified in law, therefore, there was a norm. And so it wasn't an inappropriate assumption to assume that, therefore, if you see a violation, obviously, all the activists will know who to blame. It's the national government who is, is obligated under law. Um, and so in chapter, I, th I think it's chapter three then, uh, when I talk about, yes, when I talk about why we see this, what, what allows for this very different um, environment, how it's possible um, is the way that I frame it, that we would see anti-hunger activism um, in this different shape and form. I argue that it's possible because there isn't a norm around the right to food. Um, and that may sound... I think that is quite controversial for a lot of constructivists to think about, in part because we assume that all human rights have norms because they're all you know, codified in law and thus they must. And in part because I think that the concept of a norm has gotten really squishy. Um, and so we use it in such a broad, broad way that nearly anything that has anything to do with any emotive response to um, something bad or wrong in the world, we, we, we encapsulate under that concept. And in that chapter, I argue that's a problem, that the, the right to food has lots of moral principles. There's, there's no shortage of, of a, a shared social consensus that hunger is wrong um, or that nobody should starve. 
But there's a world of difference between having that shared moral consensus and having a norm, which would say good governments are obliged to ensure their people have adequate food. And we don't have that. Um, And so that creates a a normative difference between a right to food um, and, say, a right to not be enforceably disappeared in ways that I think are consequential. Right. So naturally, the next question is, and, you know, this this is the way that your book also unfolds. The next question is, well, why isn't there an anti-hunger norm? Right. And for me, there are a number of ways I think you could answer that. For me, the most interesting thing um, is is to look at the the competing analytic frames around the hunger problem. So there are many active anti-hunger organizations, international anti-hunger organizations that don't even frame hunger as the violation of a right to food. Many that do, but you don't have to. And that's part of the point. You can still advocate around the same issue and you and avoid rights language entirely. Um, and for these groups, oftentimes there are legacies within the organization that have viewed hunger as primarily a humanitarian or a development problem. And the framework around humanitarian and development problems is is very different than the framework around a human rights violation. And I think oftentimes um, we try to pretend that they're not because that's kind of an uncomfortable truth when you look at the two side by side. But the problems framed as development or humanitarian problems often lend to or try to um, point obligation towards donor states as providing something to uh, countries or citizens in need um, or citizens in donor states through charity, for instance, to respond to these problems. Human rights frameworks if rooted in law, will focus much more squarely on the national government and its obligation to its people. But these are very different frameworks. So in part, that chapter looks at what what is the history in which these organizations have thought about this problem, either as a rights issue or humanitarian or development problem, and what is the impact of these competing analytic frames on the ability to, or likelihood, of forming a norm. Um, And I argue they make it quite a bit more difficult. And there are other reasons, too. I mean, and these are practical reasons that are important to flag, which is for development organizations, they are advocating. Many of them are advocating for the right to food. Oxfam is a good example here. They will use right to food language. But they are still running rather traditional, in some cases, operations, development operations. They are still have feeding centers and field irrigations and these sorts of things. And if you're going to run an active operation, you need to be able to continue to get visas for your staff members. And so there is a level of risk in, in pointing fingers at a national government that is different for an organization that has to continue to run their development or humanitarian operations than for an organization like um, FIAN or Amnesty, which are human rights organizations which don't run development operations, um, who don't have those same pressures. So there's both kind of the thinking about it analytically and like the history as I did at the beginning. And there are also some very practical challenges towards for some groups in, in focusing pressure on the state and in, in th- th- having that development legacy um, perpetuates in some ways or helps explain. Right. Thank you for that. So there are, you know, historical reasons and there are practical reasons why we don't have sort of consensus around an anti-hunger norm. Um, but of course, we do have a human right to food that exists in international law. Um, so why hasn't this existing international law generated a norm in this issue area? Yeah. Um, and this is is something that has been perplexing to me for quite some time, because you would assume, and 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 if you were trained as I was in, in 
human rights, you would assume that, which of course you are actually, so I mean, that is a you in a general sense, not in, not in a you particularly, um, like there is a belief that if you that you you invest in law because law pays dividends. So if you if you invest a lot in getting states to ratify documents, um, you assume that that matters because you assume that activists are going to use those documents to hold those states to account. Um, and so if you put in all the effort of getting a right to food and codifying it in international law here in the Covenant on Economic, Social, Cultural Rights, though in varied forms it exists also with CEDA and the uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child, of course, focused only on certain populations, women and children there. Um, and of course, there are also the voluntary guidelines on the right to food, which people are going to maybe dismiss because of the voluntary nature. So we can go back to the international covenant, which is legally binding. Um, but all that to say, nearly all states have have, have signed on to one of these. Um, and, and yet, they often just sit on the shelf. So when activists construct their campaigns, it's very rare that you see one of these top international anti-hunger organizations refer to law and say, you know, your obligation. And they International Covenant on Economic and Social Cultural Rights says this, and in the general comment, we clarify that you have the tripartite obligation of, you know, it, these, this is very rare that states will, or that, that NGOs will use that. And so uh, th- that final chapter is me uh, talking with activists to understand why. And in part, the best way that I can explain it is that one, again, some uh, anti-hunger organizations don't conceptualize hunger as a rights violation. And so in that sense, the, the, the there is legislation about or that there is law around the right to food becomes less relevant. Two, for those that do, they often choose to frame the right in moral terms and not legal terms. So, And they do that in, for some because they don't have a whole lot of faith in um, the enforceability of international human rights law. Although, frankly, International human rights law is not super enforceable regardless of the human right you're talking about. That's not a unique problem um, for for the right to food. Um, But that that you could frame the right in moral and not legal ways is important. Um, And it helps to, I think, explain the the more kind of nuanced way in which a lot of the anti-hunger organizations frame it. Um, And there is also very much um, practical concerns about the justiciability of the right to food um, as well. But so for many different reasons, it doesn't have the power that we had assumed it would have. That's very helpful. So I want to ask you about policy implications uh, of the book in a moment. But first, I want to take a step back um, and touch on something that we haven't talked about. So you mentioned early on that part of your research involved surveys um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, can you tell some more about those surveys and what it is that you found? Well, so the the surveys were done with a very small group of um, those that have the most elite positions within these um, top anti-anchor organizations. So um, there, I think there are 12 um, INGOs and foundations um, and senior and executive positions within those organizations. And the surveys asked um, respondents to tell me who was to blame for chronic hunger, how they understood the, the solutions to the problem, um, and allowed, and then I asked questions like, do, do you think other people in your organization will have the same view, which almost universally people said yes, and almost universally they did not. Um, and so in the end, what it allowed me to do was map out how executives in these organizations think about these kind of core questions for human rights. So who's to blame? How should you solve the problem? And see that their responses were all over the map. They were very complex and very 
different um, and and use that to look at how we think about kind of a normative environment here when there are very different assumptions within within the senior and executive officials within these organizations about who should do what as it related to um, uh, international uh, hunger, particularly chronic hunger. And that isn't to say there was disagreement again on the desire for there to not be hunger. There certainly was an agreement there. The, the challenge comes with that next step. Um, yeah. So I think that, that that's a helpful kind of segue to uh, my question about policy implications, uh, which is also something that you address in the book. So what, what would you say are the implications of your findings for, you know, for policymakers, for activists, for lawyers, and so on? So I think one of the takeaways for me um, for, for activists themselves um, is my worry about what may be the potential consequences of the advocacy approach that's taken in the hunger space. So the book lays out the buckshot model. It's not an argument that that's a good model. In fact, I have a lot of concerns that 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 actually is not a useful model, that this, I mean, it's empirically correct, but I don't know if normatively it's good, (laughs) that it's going to actually yield the type of outcome that we want, in part because it allows, I I think you see when looking at this issue space through that model, the openings for actors to deflect responsibility are more pronounced. Um, And I do worry about, in the long term, the ability of um, human rights movements for food to be able to successfully pressure states to take up this obligation more seriously. Um, And I do think that empirically, if we look at where we see the, the most improvement in hunger rates, um, it tracks with places where national governments have made important policy choices to take up that responsibility. And so I don't think we can solve the hunger problem without having national governments take that up with their own citizens. But yet if our advocacy is kind of skirting that question in favor of, of other um, target actors, but but not actually going after the national government, I do worry um, about what the implications of that may be. So in part, I talk about that in the in the concluding chapter. I think there's also reasons to worry about the longevity um, and the durability of anti-hunger programs that we do have if they aren't, uh, if they don't exist side by side with a strong norm. Um, so, for instance, Bolsa Familia uh, and Fomecero in uh, Brazil has been extremely successful in reducing hunger rates. But there's some public opinion data to suggest that among certain populations, certain segments of the populations, notably the most educated in society, that support for that program may be waning. Um, And then that raises the question, well, can you have a long-term public policy in the absence of a domestic understanding that actually the state should be obliged to do this? This should be part of the job of a state to make sure its people have access to adequate food. Well, if you don't have a core consensus on on, on that norm, if there isn't a norm in, in in society that, yeah, in fact, the state is obliged to do these things, then we do need to be worried about um, the durability of these programs. And I think these are questions we don't pay attention to when we don't think about norms. Um, And I think that's a problem. Also, I think, I mean, just generally, uh, oftentimes the if you go into, you know, think tank conversations or the DC policy community when it relates to food, the conversations are on technical solutions to the problem, but they're not on who's supposed to do anything about it. Um, and I, I think social sciences are really good at, <laughs> at pointing to that question. Um, and I think that in this space, 
my hope is that people reading the book will also kind of come out of that thinking, ah, okay, the who is a big question and the who remains a contested idea. So more focus on gaining a consensus on the who and not just the what um, should be done would be, I think, helpful. Um, for academics, it's different. So for academics, my hope is that this highlights the need to focus on economic and social rights, that it highlights for constructivists the need to take seriously that if we're going to argue that norms can enable certain behaviors or make more likely certain behaviors, make more possible certain behaviors, we have to be willing to have a theoretical space where then, okay, does that mean that if no norm, it's less likely or less possible that we're going to see certain behaviors like focused advocacy on a common villain? Um, and so my hope is that that helps to kind of move us forward a bit on the constructivist side and on the human rights side. Um, and on the law side is is just the, the hopefully the conceptual difference between um, norms and law as they play out with food will be useful when we think about what the limitations are um, of human rights law around economic and social rights, particularly food, uh, if they are not um, joined with or married with uh, a norm. So I, I personally really appreciated, again, the, the ways that this book tries to sort of shift our attention or maybe cast more light on social and economic rights that have been, uh, that really haven't received as much attention as they deserve in political science scholarship. And, you know, the focus on hunger, as you note in the book, is is apt because the right to food is, you know, an argument can be made that the right to food is the most basic, the most essential, right, human right that you, that, that is a right that is necessary for the enjoyment of all other rights. Uh, now, Michelle, obviously, we've only skimmed the surface of the content that's in the book. But is there anything we haven't covered that you think is important for listeners to know? No, I've really appreciated the conversation. So thank you. Great. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but just one final question. Um, now, you know, this book is out. Uh, what are you working <laughs> on now? So I'm working on two big projects now. So one um, kind of uses as liftoff point that uh, something I, I mentioned briefly when we first started talking, which is the difference in the level of aspiration um, in, in anti-hunger campaigns. So I'm working on a larger project with Martha Fenimore on the role of aspiration in politics and kind of the dark side of highly aspirational statements. So as we see kind of a turn towards the, you know, zero hunger by 2030, uh, zero waste by 2030, these highly aspirational claims, what are what kind of space does that enable and what can be some of the the... Uh, challenges with these space in terms of accountability in particular. And so that's one project. Um, and the second project roots squarely back with food um, and is 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 a bit more, his, a, has a historical component and a contemporary component, but I'm interested in how ration packages vary um, based from one body to the next. So what was surprising to me during my year working at the U.S. government was to learn that different um, so part of my job when I was there was to uh, go to refugee camps and development um, food program operations and run focus groups and interviews with women in particular and youth who receive food assistance um, to learn about what's working and what's not, and then report back to the to the government. And in the process of doing that, I learned that different refugee communities get different food baskets from within the same organization. And that these baskets, I know, they vary both in quality and in quantity. So um, one basket may have uh, far less nutritional diversity. It may just be 
um, flour and a, a dried yellow split pea and oil. And another basket for a different refugee community could include canned fish or tomato paste or bulgur, right? So if you're a Syrian refugee as opposed to a Yemeni refugee or a South Sudanese refugee, you get a different basket of food. And it is not explained well by dietary preferences because nobody wants the really bad baskets. They just are. Um, and so the second project looks at why we why that happens. Um, so what what both how can we map descriptively all the variation in the food that is given across different refugee communities today? Um, and historically, how we have, have thought about the provision of food. This is in part because if you push on this question asking, say, WFP, why, why do you give different baskets of food to different people? They might say, as they did, um, well, at least it meets a particular nutritional standard as based by the calorie and or X, Y, or Z. So the question becomes, prior to the invention of the calorie um, and modern nutritional sciences, did did we think about, how did we think about the construction of the basket? Was it better? Was it worse? Did it vary? And so the work I was doing at the Library of Congress was on the historical um, uh, package of what was given on Native American reservations and in the Freedmen's Bureau uh, in, right after the Civil War, because the U.S. government was running feeding operations in, in different populations at the same time as well their own soldiers. So one, mapping out the variation there. And then there's a secondary part, which is going through the contemporary food operations. Um, so that is the second big project. Those, both of these sound like fascinating and important projects. And I look forward to you know hearing and reading more about them. Michelle, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the show today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The book is Michelle Yurkovich's Feeding the Hungry, Advocacy and Blame in the Global Fight Against Hunger, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening.